We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 today, and um, I hope that you will take your Bible out and turn to that and, and um, listen attentively as we, we discuss what's in God's Word. But before we do that, I want to uh, go to the Lord in prayer and uh, just pray that God would use this time. You need to understand something. I love Jesus with all my heart. And there isn't anything I wouldn't do for Jesus Christ. He's the Lord, he's the Savior, he's the Master. He's the one that decides. And so as we think about that, I want to pray that God would use this time today in each one of your lives. That you would hear God speak to you attentively. That he would be speaking directly to you. That you don't see Ridge, you see the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Loving Father, I pray that you would just guide us as we look in your word. And Father, we are disciples of yours, Jesus. We want to follow your teachings. We want to we pattern our life after your life. Father, I know that many times we fall short. And Father, we confess that to you. That God, we need more of you and less of us. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us through your word. That God, you've given your word to us so that we might know you better. So that we might know who you are and what, what you are and, and what you are about. And who we are and how we relate to you. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth. And we ask this in the mighty and precious name of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You know, we've been talking about discipleship, and specifically our discipleship to Jesus Christ, following Him. And, um, you know, it often requires us, as we read a, a couple of weeks ago, the Beatitudes. You know, and, and, and we see that. We, we have to, to focus on the heart attitude. Um, being able to focus on the things that Jesus taught. And, and then that will naturally overflow into a witness to the world, that we will be salt and light. If we are focusing on those beatitudes, they help us to become salt and light in our world. And that will produce a life of righteousness that fulfills God's will for our lives. And that's really what I want to talk about this morning, is how Jesus interprets God's will. Okay, because he's teaching his disciples. He's teaching us about God and about what that looks like. And, and I ask the question, how can a life of discipleship be measured? How do you know if you're doing okay with that? How do you know if you're on track with what God would have you to do according to his will? And I, I think as we look at this, you know, we're going to see that more clearly. You know, I, I'm told... I've never really experienced it myself, as you will understand, but I'm told that long-distance runners sometimes experience a runner's high when they are more than halfway through their race. I mean, I I'm not a long-distance runner. You probably have figured that out. But you know, you know they, they experience this high about halfway through. And the runner's high is, is a sense of euphoria that allows them to run almost effortlessly with renewed energy. 
you know, after training for their event, they, they run, they, they, they give their best effort according to the rules that provide guidance in a successful endeavor. And they do all that they can according to their training. And, and, but when their runner's high kicks in, they are able to do more. They are able to do what they can't physically do. Their bodies move beyond simple mechanics to a higher level of performance. Oh, how we need a higher level of performance in our discipleship. See, Jesus interpreted God's will uh, for the law of Moses by fulfilling it and going beyond it. He taught that a life of discipleship can be measured by how a disciple goes beyond the simple mechanics of the law, if you will. To, to live a life of goodness that, that is springing up, that is heart grounded, that is springing up from the heart in the character of Almighty God. You see, God's will goes beyond the law of Moses. It goes beyond that. I mean, we have the Ten Commandments printed on, uh, engraved on, on, on red granite out here in front of our church that's the law if you will of Moses but but being a disciple goes beyond that I would say God's will goes beyond that it's not enough just to keep the Ten Commandments although none of us are able to do that all the time but it's not enough it's not enough I mean Jesus didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it and he emphasized the importance of the law. If you look in chapter 5, verse 18, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Hey, 2,000 years later, his word stands true. Amen. It's still out there. It's not changed. It's still true. And it will continue to be true all the way through the end of time. You think about this, Jesus is saying this, and the law that the disciples had known was not the law of God. Think about this. In that first century, the code of religious practices was designed to impress others. I mean, this form of, of, of I want to say, codified or, or ordered behavior, it was harsh and oppressive. I mean, there were some 613 laws that, that, that people were expected to obey. I mean, you look at our own laws today. I mean, the, the rules regarding the, the growth and sale of cabbage is, is like, it's a book like this thick. How can we possibly keep all of that? It's so hard. It's, it's, it's harsh. It's oppressive. And Jesus referred to it this way. Look at verse 20. He said, for I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Ouch. It's not about keeping the law. Not the law. I love this because notice that Jesus is not objecting, excuse me, he is objecting to misinterpreting the law, not the law itself. He says that law is going to hold. It's going to stand. I think that's amazing. He says, for I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, Jesus is saying that the kingdom, 
He's saying the king, that kingdom righteousness um, operates from the inside out, not from the outside in. This is an important fact. Because in the new covenant, he says he's going to write his, his word on our hearts. And it's going to come from the inside out. See, this is nothing new, though. God's people knew that external acts of righteousness could not take away their sin or could not gain favor with God unless a repentant heart came first. I'll tell you the same thing that Jesus said. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Each and every one of us must repent. It's that repentant heart that comes first. I mean, we're, we're reminded of that over in Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17. Uh, David writes this. It says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. That's that repentant heart. Coming before God and saying, I am nothing and you are everything. I have sinned before you. The things that I've done in the flesh have, I've committed against you and you alone. So many times we act like, well, he's not going to hold me accountable. I'll do what I want. You might for a while. You know, sometimes when a person initially comes to Christ, they think about discipleship what it means to be a follower of his, and it has to do more with a bunch of don'ts. <laughs> well, I can't do this anymore, and I can't go there anymore, and, and I can't do this or do that. But Jesus came to show us that God's will goes beyond the law, that God's will is positive. I love that. It's based on what I will do rather than what I won't do. I mean, follow me now. Jesus came to fulfill the law by showing that we cannot keep the law by trying to keep the law. But by being, by being the kind of disciple whose lifestyle follows from the deeds of goodness that are reflecting in the law's intent. Okay, so what, what he's saying there is out of the, out of the inside, what, what comes out of the inside flows out and it keeps the spirit of the law. It's not about doing and making sure that we keep every letter. It's about allowing God's spirit to flow through us. And it's beyond the law. God's will moves beyond the law of Moses. Now, you know, the law is fulfilled in the spirit of obedience rather than in the letter of obedience. And Paul, in 2 Corinthians, he reminds every believer that the new covenant in Jesus Christ is not expressed by the letter, but it's expressed by the spirit. See, apart from him, we can do nothing. Oh, we think we're pretty smart. We think we can do a lot of things. But apart from Jesus Christ, apart from God in our life, apart from the Holy Spirit at work in us, we can do nothing of any spiritual value. Apart from me, you can do nothing, he says. God's will, as interpreted by Jesus, goes beyond the law. 
See, God's will demands a higher righteousness. In, in John 1, 17, it says the law came through Moses. Grace and truth are realized through Jesus Christ. You know, as Jesus continued with this sermon, he, he clarified God's will for the law by pointing out the truth of a higher righteousness. Think about this for a minute. A higher righteousness. The word higher, you know, meaning more, moving beyond that higher righteousness. See, prior to coming to the earth, Jesus, uh, the, the law of Moses was, uh, consisted largely of, of prohibitions. I mean, we have them printed out there. Thou shalt not. Don't do that. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't murder. Thou shalt not. But Jesus came giving the law a more positive meaning and practice. The emphasis has changed from not from what a disciple does not do, but it changes to what a disciple is to be. It's not about our deeds and our works. It's about being and belonging to him. See, Jesus challenges us as his disciples to go beyond the law, not because we have to, but because we want to. It's our desire. You remember in the parables as Jesus taught, he spoke of God's judgment in relation to failure of duty more often than he did talk about a, a failure in um, a violation of some definite law. It was more about failure of duty. And this failure of duty is represented in a higher righteousness than the, that of the scribes or Pharisees. And Jesus points out, and this is a little bit of a lengthy passage, but we'll move through it quickly. He points out six illustrations, if you will, um, where this higher righteousness um, that, that he's talking about comes from. And if, if you follow along, read with me in verse 21. He says, You have heard that the ancients were told... Thou shalt not commit murder, and whoever commits murder will be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court, and whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go to the fiery hell, into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up. The last scent. <laughs> He's talking there about anger. Anger. I mean, the will of God in the higher righteousness goes beyond the law, and it says, do not be angry and treat others with contempt. I mean, that anger is, it, it violates the higher righteousness, and, and, and the reason it does is because it's rooted in your heart. You get angry with somebody, you blow up at somebody, and all of a sudden you start seething and you're angry and, and, and you have contempt in your heart for them. That wherever you see them, you can't even look at them. 
You're upset. You're, you're angry about that. And, and really what he's saying is this anger is a natural emotion, but it must be managed properly without becoming destructive to us or to others. This is important. Because we cannot be right with God until we're right with others. We think that we can be right with God apart from everybody else. But it doesn't work that way. This relationship and these relationships, they go together. When this relationship is good, these relationships are good. When this relationship right here is broken, these relationships are broken. It's not rocket science. That's how it works. If a Christian is harboring unkind or unworthy thoughts about another, all of his external deeds are worthless until he rights the wrong with his brother. It's that inside-out thing. Higher righteousness. You know, a church was, um, ran a competition to find out the most, um, the highest principled, uh, most sober, well-behaved local citizen. And among the entries came, uh, came one which read, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't gamble, I'm faithful to my wife, and I never look at another woman. I'm hardworking, I'm quiet and obedient. I never go to bad movies. And I go to bed early every night and I rise with the dawn. I attend chapel regularly every Sunday without fail. I've been like this for the last three years. But you just wait till they let me out of here. It's not enough for us to be constrained into doing right. It's got to come from the inside out. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's not the outward outward action only God cares about. It's what's in the heart. Look at the next passage. He says in verse 27, "You've you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. Throw it away from you. For it is, it is better that you um, lose one eye uh, the parts of your body than the whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to lose uh, one of the parts of your body than for the whole body to go into hell. I think this is huge because the law, the law prohibited a married person from having sexual intercourse with someone other than his or her spouse. And Jesus went beyond the law, by teaching that looking upon a woman with lust in your heart is committing adultery with her in your heart. Because when the heart is ready, the action will occur if the occasion is right. It's a matter of the heart. I mean, being tempted is not wrong. We are all tempted. Jesus, it says in in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. 
You know, Jesus has already been there. He's already been tempted in that way. And he didn't sin. So you have no excuse. I have no excuse. You know, our real problem is the disease of our hearts. So our sin must be dealt with as an internal principle as well as an external act. I mean, just like God told Cain in Genesis chapter 4, he said sin is knocking at the door and its desire is for you. You must master it. If you don't take care of your sin, it's going to create in you a desire for more. If you don't, it's going to destroy you if you don't take care of that sin, if you don't master it. And the reality is, many times we don't want to master it. We rather enjoy it. Because we don't want to be accountable to God. And that's where the problem lies, right here in the heart. I mean, real adultery can be committed in the mind. I mean, there are people today, respectable men and women, if you will, who have never committed an act of adultery, but they enjoy sinning in the mind, entertaining themselves with the excitement of imagined situations. I mean, it's one thing for a husband to say he's never committed adultery. It's another to say that he's never violated the marriage through flirting with another woman or through looking at pornography. And brothers and sisters, our country is eat up with it. It's mind-boggling. The pornography industry alone. I mean, if you took all of the revenue from Major League Baseball and the NFL and, and the National Basketball Association and, and, and the National Hockey League, and you took all of those and, and, and put all the revenues, all the monies that is wrapped up in that, it, pornography dwarfs that. We got a problem. We got a big problem. It's no wonder that our marriages don't work out. It's no wonder that we have struggles with this. You see, for me to give myself solely and only to my wife treats her with the dignity she deserves as a woman who has been created in the image of God. That's the dignity that she deserves. See, Jesus calls us to be brutally honest with ourselves and to commit ourselves to our spouses with the same type of single-mindedness commitment that we have to him. We've got to move on. There's lots to do here. Verse 31 talks about divorce. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I mean, the law permitted divorce for, un, for, for marital unfaithfulness. But the divorce had to be accompanied by a certificate of divorce. But Jesus went beyond the mere technicalities of divorce according to the law of Moses. You see, he dealt with the practical realities of the divorce's damage and what it does to the woman. The higher righteousness looks beyond those technicalities to the person's uh, spiritual health and, and, and this person's emotional uh, uh, realities. 
I mean, respecting that purity in marriage allows us as disciples to understand God's original design for marriage and to be committed to its permanence and its sanctity. The problem is, is the world all around us wants to cheapen it. They want to make it where they're throwaway marriages. They want, they, they've made a mockery of marriage. And that's what he's saying is there's a, there's a commitment there that adds, sig, that, that adds dignity and, and, and sanctity and permanence in marriage. But it, it begins with faithfulness. To be unfaithful to that relationship, the relationship with your spouse, spouse is to be unfaithful to God. Because he's the one who brought you two together. Now our world can turn around and twist things and make it something that it was never intended to be. But I don't read that anywhere in God's word. One man and one woman together for a lifetime. That's marriage. This, this part on divorce here, you know, if we will stay firmly committed to the relationship in every way, we will experience the fullness of relationship that God has for humanity. I want to pull the, the truck over and park here for just a moment. Divorce within a marriage can never be considered as an option. Not if you want to stay married. Your love for each other needs to be greater than anything that you face. Because the world would love for you to think, oh, it's simple, just pull it apart and go find somebody else that suits you. Somebody else that makes you happy. Folks, that's not what it's about. You're making a mockery of, of, of what God created when you do that. But divorce cannot be an option. And Jesus is saying, work it out. Stay married. Figure it out. Don't, don't, take the, don't push the easy button. It's not about your happiness. It's not about your opinion. You made a commitment. Stick with your commitment. That's what he's saying. And don't cause other people to sin. Wow. Because when, when, when you divorce your wife, what you've done is, is now, it says here, Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, you're causing someone else to sin when you do that. Stay together, that's what he's saying. So recognize within the community of faith, reconciliation, getting back together, and forgiveness is always the goal of those relationships. Jesus did not say that remarriage in the case of a legitimate divorce is invalid. He also didn't say that illegitimate divorce or even illegitimate remarriage are unpardonable sins. I'm not trying to heap condemnation on anyone in here. It's all forgivable with God, but it's not going to come apart from repentance. Jesus is saying it goes beyond the law. While there are always consequences for our actions, let's not try to cancel out God's grace. In this, in this time. But he is talking about a higher righteousness. We can't just do whatever we want. Okay, moving on here. Look at verse 33. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill the vow, your vows to the Lord. 
But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, which, which, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, or for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of our great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Uh, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. I mean, the law banned someone from invoking God's name. You know, swearing by an oath or some other sacred thing to enforce their testimony. I mean, Jesus went to the heart of why people swear by an oath. (laughs) He went to the heart of it. I mean, swearing an oath is a way of getting your way. I mean, what does somebody say? You know, you see it. um, Cross my heart, hope to die. Poke a needle in my eye. What they're saying is, I'm telling you the truth, and you can count it. You can take it to the bank. I've heard people say this, too. I swear to God. They're invoking his name. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't do that. I've also heard people say, with God as my witness. Same deal. They're trying to get their way. They're trying to add credibility to their testimony using God's name. It's a manipulation. And it violates the simplicity and purity of the higher law of righteousness. A simple yes should suffice. A simple no should suffice. I mean, Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, a bad man cannot be believed... On his oath. And a good man speaks the truth without an oath. I mean, a disciple must be so truthful and so honest that no one doubts their words. I mean, when you say yes to someone, then follow through and keep your word. God wants us to have such a reputation that people know that you tell the truth. They're not questioning that. They know that you're going to be straight up with them. I mean, just say what you mean and mean it. That's what Jesus is telling them. It reminds me about a priest and a pastor. They were pastoring these local churches. And uh, they they were standing by the road and they were pounding this sign into the ground by the road. And it says, the end is near on the sign. It says, turn around while you still have time. Well, some guy comes speeding past him and he yells out the window. He says, leave us alone, you religious nuts. And pretty soon on the curve, they heard the screeching of tires and a big splash. And the priest, he looks at the pastor and he he says, "Uh, do you think the sign should just say bridge out? (laughs) I mean, really, say what you mean and mean it. Sometimes we go all the way around and we we try not to, and then we have to feel like we have to add something to our testimony. Verse 38 says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Go, uh, give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Talking about this phrase in light of, of um, racial violence, 
Martin Luther King said this, Martin Luther King Jr. He said, the old law of an eye for an eye leaves everyone blind. There's so much truth to that. The law allowed for retaliation for wrongdoing. Jesus taught his disciples that they were going beyond the law by returning good for evil. They were doing more than just what one must do to help out and by giving to those who ask. Many times we don't want to give anything that we have away. But all of us have something to give. And really what Jesus is saying here, the the higher righteousness is be generous. Be generous. I want to say a miser is no follower of Jesus. You remember the parables that he said? He talked about the Samaritan binding up the man's wounds, carrying him to the inn, putting it there. He said, here, this will take care of the needs that he has. And if that's not enough, I'll repay you whatever is owed when I return. You know, it's amazing the generosity that comes from from serving God. I mean, I believe that discretion is to be used in our giving. We don't want to encourage idleness or beggary. But the general rule is to give when you're asked to give. When someone asks of you. And finally, he says here, You've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the the Gentiles do the same? Verse 48, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, this final contrast here between the law and the higher righteousness, it focuses on what we are to do with our enemies. I think this was telling to me. Because I look at this and it says that one should love your neighbor as yourself. And, And what it says there is it says, you have heard that it was said. Somebody was teaching that. Somebody was teaching that you are to love your neighbor and hate your enemies. You follow what I'm saying? Somebody that's a rabbi. Somebody that is higher up in the religious order. Somebody that is teaching others and telling them about God's will. And Jesus says, you have heard that it was said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I think that's huge. Because the backstory on that is that Jews only considered other Israelites or proselyte Gentiles as their neighbors. They did not consider anyone outside of that area as being their neighbors. No Samaritans, no other Gentiles, nobody from any other nationality or culture would have been their neighbor. And what he says is he says, love your neighbor, love your enemies, pray for them. See, he weighed that ethic against the higher righteousness by saying that they should love their enemies to the point of praying for them. 
I mean, Jesus replaces this law with an attitude, if you will. Be willing to suffer loss rather than cause another to suffer. I mean, regardless of race, regardless of color or culture, we are to love all people because God is love. And we are to reflect the love of God to all people. I mean, when we pray for our enemies, we find it easier to love them. Because it takes the poison out of our attitude. You know, God's will is fulfilled in spiritual perfection. That's what that verse says. You know, if Jesus was commanding his disciples to do everything as perfectly as God did, well, he's asking for the impossible. Because we read in God's word, there's none righteous, no, not one. Not one is righteous. Isaiah 64 says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. So how can a disciple measure up to the perfection that Jesus commands? I would say that this perfection is found in the perfect love of God. I mean, Jesus said it this way in Matthew 22. He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. I mean, when the love that's spoken of in this greatest commandment flows from the disciple, when that kind of love flows out of your heart, from God actively at work within you, we're going to experience that higher, but I say to you, that higher kind of righteousness that Jesus talked about. See, our life of discipleship is measured by this. By what is the Spirit telling us? By what, how are we serving out of the love that God has given us in our hearts? See, to be a disciple means that we, that we deliberately identify ourselves with God's interest in other people. What is God doing in their life? And I'm going to give you an illustration of that. See, the perfection Jesus is teaching here is a perfection of our heart's desire, centered in the love of God. Apart from God, we can do nothing. But with Him, nothing is impossible. I mean, think about it this way. Last part, I promise. Say what you mean and mean it. We don't grow all together spiritually in one moment. We don't grow all at once. It's not like we receive Christ and then boom, we're a mature spiritual individual. It doesn't work that way. Just like we don't grow all at once physically. We go through stages. First we're a baby, then we're a child, then we're a young adult, and then we're an adult. Spiritually, what what he's saying is be adults. Be mature in this. Grow in your faith and knowledge. Know who God is so much that that love that he brings flows out of your heart to others. I mean, it's moving from, let's say, ignorance like a baby. They don't know anything. To a child who is is self-centered. You don't have to see a child very long to know that. 
give me that. That's mine. I want that. Towards becoming a, a, a uh, excuse me, uh, towards God-centered and, 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 and other-centered, which would be like uh, becoming a young adult. And then towards intentionality and strategy, which would be more of a parent. But you see, as we grow in our faith, when a disciple is maturing, they are moving away from church and their Christianity being all about them. This is big. Because we talk about enjoying the service or the song selection or getting ministered to or getting fed or, 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 or us getting. If it's about us getting, then we're not spiritually mature yet. Because when we move towards maturity in our faith as a disciple, it's more about giving than it is about getting. I mean, we identify our gifts to be used for the edifying of the body. We do everything we can to make sure that others are getting out of this worship time what they need to be getting out of it. It might look like somebody volunteering to work in the nursery so that other parents can spend time in in the Word and, and, and be undistracted by that. It's more about giving than it is about getting. We give of our time, our talents, and our treasure. We connect to God and to others, not waiting for them to come and connect to us. When we become spiritually mature, we're the ones taking the reins. We're the ones connecting to God. We're the ones who become self-feeders, not waiting to get fed. And we move from just doing to being. And that's really what he's talking about. We must be growing and not stagnant in our faith. And the final act of maturity is when one comes alongside someone else to disciple them and to teach them what it means to walk towards Jesus Christ. Being that parent for them, if you will, helping them to learn how to form their life around Jesus. Love like Jesus. Minister grace to all people like Jesus. Parent new believers. I mean, Jesus moved beyond the law to the higher righteousness. And in Luke 18, he says, all things are possible with God. He says, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. See, if we will cultivate that inner life, then the higher righteousness will flow out supernaturally. 